Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea Wong with you once again. Today, I am going to speak with my guest, Andrew Olson, who is the Senior Vice President at Dickerson Baker about the perennial question, how do I get more donors? So today we're going to talk to Andrew about his favorite strategies for getting more folks in the pipeline. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Same here. And you're not just an SVP. You're also an author, fellow podcaster and advisor, and you run the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. So always so fun to talk to a fellow podcaster. It is. I feel like it's a small but mighty cohort. I'm excited to do this. Excellent. Okay. Let's just jump right into it, friend. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your start in the nonprofit world. Yeah. So like everybody else, I went to school for nonprofit fundraising. No, I'm just kidding. Like all of us, right? I stumbled into this. I was 22, 23. I was selling commercial real estate in Los Angeles and hated it. And my father-in-law actually introduced me to a friend of his, a guy that he was in a men's church group with. And that gentleman happened to be the son of a guy named Russ Reed. And for many of your listeners, they might know that name as one of the formerly largest agencies that serve nonprofits for their marketing needs. So I just stumbled into a role at Russ Reed in Southern California and started working on direct marketing programs, gosh, almost 25 years ago now. Been doing it ever since. All right, Andrew, let's talk about this. <laughs> so the reason I got connected with you is I was seeing your posts on LinkedIn about marketing and inbound marketing strategies. And your average nonprofit executive, A, doesn't have a marketing background, and B, tends to think of marketing and communications and branding and all that sort of stuff as a interruption to their day, let's say, right? Because they're here to do the important work. And then they might think of fundraising as the less important, but also important work. But talk to me about why every nonprofit executive should be thinking about a marketing strategy. Yeah. So very simply put, there is no mission without money and the money is not going to come to you organically. I talk to organizations every day who are trying to stop global sex trafficking, who are trying to feed the homeless in their community, who are trying to get people off of illicit drugs, who are trying to rescue animals, trying to save the planet, all sorts of really important mission work. And the one thing they all say is some variation of, if we just had more money, we could do so much more. And so the C-suite executive in every organization needs to be the organization's chief evangelist and chief fundraiser. And for many executives right now, they're cringing and they're going like, no, I hired so that I didn't have to do that. And I'm not suggesting that they have to be the person literally out asking for the money, but they have to own the success of the organization's marketing and fundraising operation, because that's the only way that most nonprofits, probably 98% generate revenue. And that's what fuels the mission. I'm so glad you said that. And in fact, I will go one step further. I tell EDs that 65 to 80% of their time should be spent on fundraising because they are uniquely qualified to represent the work, the mission, and the brand. And if you're not doing that, then I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and they'll talk to me. They'll say Absolutely. things like, I do strategy. I'm like, I literally don't know what that means. Like, you need to be yeah. bringing money in the door. So that's code for I sit in my office and think about stuff. And yeah. Yeah. In, in fact, I was on a call this morning with a nonprofit leader and I said something similar to him. And really what it came down to was like, look, 
if you think for a minute that donors are just sitting at their computers next to their phones, thinking to themselves, wow, I can't wait for a fundraiser to call me, you're insane. I remember I was at a case conference, so the Council for Advancement in Education, I forget what the S stands for. It was a long time ago. And I remember they, they had published a survey at the time, probably a decade ago, and they one of the findings when they surveyed donors was donors said, we will tolerate a call or a meeting with a fundraiser. We want to talk to someone that runs programs. And that's only amplified if there's opportunity to meet with a C-suite executive, whether you're a chief philanthropy officer, a CEO, a chief operating officer, chief program officer, whatever it is. We need to change the perspective because the missing link is that your best supporters want to engage directly with your leadership, not because they want to take over your organization, they want to tell you what to do, but most of the time because they want two things. They want accountability for where their giving is going to go, and they want to connect with someone who can speak to the vision of the future of the organization. And that's often not your fundraiser. Yeah, that's such a good point. And ultimately, especially when we're talking about the really significant givers, they're used to having access. So if mm -hmm. you as the top executive are not out there meeting your donors, talking with your donors, and I don't know what you're doing. Let's switch tacks a little bit because in the last, since you started in this, since I started in this, the world has only become louder, more complex. People's attention spans have gotten shorter. We're inundated every which way with ads and calls to action and emails and so on and so forth. How do we as nonprofits cut to the noise to find the people who are going to be our people? Yeah, it's a great question. I was a couple of weeks ago, I was down in Dallas with my good friend, Eric Tamales, who works at Virtuous. I don't know if Eric or not, but he was doing a presentation. And one of the things, the scary thing that he shared was that when we think about capturing attention span of the average American, let's say, the comparison that he gave was a goldfish's attention span is nine seconds. And the average human in the U.S., has an attention span of eight seconds. So I think about that and I think, okay, so I've got less attention span than a goldfish. That's what I've got to act within in order to capture someone's attention and get them to care at all about my cause. We have to think first about what are the interruptive experiences that we can create. And I use that term purposefully, right? We don't ever want to be a burden to people. So many times I talk to nonprofit leaders who are like, no, I don't want to do anything that causes us to be a burden or makes people feel like we're annoying them or anything like that. But to your point, this has become such a noisy world that if you don't take a page out of the commercial marketing playbook and find ways to interrupt someone's day, I don't mean that in the annoying, hey, I'm a telemarketer, I'm calling you at 5.45 PM when your family's sitting down to dinner, although I bet that still works in some cases. But if we're not doing things that cause people to stop in their tracks and go, oh, I, I need to pay attention to this. This is interesting. This is, I'm curious about this. If we're not doing that and doing it well, then the marketing spend that we're putting out is not going to generate a positive return for us. It's not going to help us acquire a new supporter, acquire a new volunteer or advocate. It's just going to be money poorly spent if we're not actually causing people to stop in their tracks and make a decision of whether or not to interact with us. And so I think that's one key point. I think the other key point is 
understanding who your audience really is. I am bothered by organizations that say, no, everybody should. Care. Oh my God. That's great. That's great. If everybody like, is your donor, nobody is your donor. It's exactly right. There are so many sort of micro audiences these days. And if you, to your point, if you think everybody is your donor, you're going to spend a whole lot of money and have nobody engaging with you. So before you even get down to what channel should I be in? What should my message be? All of that kind of stuff. You really have to understand who is it that cares about what we do? And then we can decide where do we reach them and what's the message that's most likely to compel. So good. Okay. So many things I want to touch on. So what are some examples of interruptive things that we can think about that are not annoying? Because I do think that there is a tendency to be very conservative on the communications front. But to your point, we need to pay attention to stuff. And I only pay attention to stuff that actually like grabs my attention. So some fun examples that you can think of? Yeah. So one example that's fairly recent, when everything, the conflict started in Ukraine, right? Save the Children went up on connected television with some advertising, right? And it was very bold, very engaging. And for those of you that don't, aren't familiar with connected television, that's basically delivering TV ads uh, not through broadcast, but to your set-top display. So whether that's Hulu or Paramount Plus or any of those sort of subscribed channels, right? So it, the reason I use this one is, one, it's highly effective. Two, it is interruptive, right? You're sitting there watching your favorite show, and all of a sudden, you've got an advertising experience that you can't get out of, right? Because it's not something you can scroll past. You can't swipe it away or anything like that. It's you're there, and if you want that content that follows it, you've got to experience that commercial. They actually raised a ton of money and built a pretty significant following off of that kind of advertising. I think the same thing when we think about some of the sort of more traditional channels, right? Think about if you've ever been on the street in New York or DC or Philadelphia or some of these bigger markets and someone's walked up to you and they've been wearing a vest that's either again, either Save the Children or Greenpeace or UNICEF or I mean, any number of different organizations. And they're going to literally intercept you on the street and make an impassioned plea for you to support the organization and the cause. That's a really interruptive experience, right? Yeah, um, I would argue like and not in a positive way, but please continue. Yeah, yeah, it can be, right? If it's done well, it can be. But I would agree with you that in many cases, it's not. So those are some of the sort of easier to understand ways. But I think a lot of it comes down to what's the message and what's the creative that you're putting behind it, right? Because all of anything that's interruptive is going to be in a mass media channel for the most part. It's not going to be you showing up on my doorstep to, to bring me coffee and say, hey, let's chat about this new opportunity. That's the financials just don't support that. So when we talk about the more interruptive things, they all have to either be broadcast or digital marketing, direct mail driven, those kind of channels. And I think even in the traditional marketing spend that organizations might already have, right? Let's say you've got an organization that's doing direct mail donor acquisition, and maybe they're doing some digital marketing to support that as well. There are ways to be interruptive with those mediums that, that maybe are not things that you've thought of before. So for example, I have seen organizations in their digital marketing have video engagement, and that video might be a, an engaging 30 second or 15 second video about what's going on in, in, their, in, in their cause. It's not about their organization. It's not about somebody getting promoted or anything like that. It is 
a deeply felt emotional story driven 30 second experience of the cause. Those kind of things can be very interruptive and can cause someone to say, oh, I need to know more about this, right? I'm going to click on this ad. I'm going to hit this QR code, whatever, and get deeper into that cause and that mission. Because that's really what you're looking for. You're essentially looking to say, how do I cause someone to give a rip about what we are doing and what we're talking about if they've never heard of us before, if they don't know us, if we've not if we don't have the trust of brand loyalty. And so it's got to be something that stops them in their tracks and causes them to pay attention for an extra 10 seconds. Andrew, I love that you said that. Can we just dispel a myth right now? The myth being that the minute people hear about us, they're going to want to give us money. Yeah, for sure. In the advertising world, we often would say it takes seven to 10 touches before someone's ready to buy. And when you think about the fact that from a fundraising perspective, you're not selling a tangible product, right? Someone like whatever your cause is, you're not sending somebody home with a product when they give you a contribution. So you actually have to jump an even bigger hurdle, which is build the trust that I will give you my money and not see anything back immediately. Like I would, if I'm going to a grocery store to buy something, if I'm going to Trader Joe's or going to Target to get a product. But you've got to build enough credibility and trust that I can say, here's my money, go away with it. And sometime in the future, tell me that it's done good. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. The idea that someone's immediately going to say, oh yeah, here, take my money. I just met you. Let's do this deal. That's few and far between. Sure. There, there are going to be some people who are going to say that. There's two things that I know about those people to be true, largely based on almost 25 years of doing this work. The people who say yes immediately often say yes to everyone. And so they're what I would call a tipper. You're going to get a $5, $10, $15 gift from them. And so are nine other organizations. And they're never going to build a meaningful relationship with you because it's just not who they are. Or they're going to check you out with a quick gift. And if you don't deliver massive value after that, they're going to move on. Beyond that, the opportunity really is. How do I build awareness and preference in the marketplace so that when someone's ready to make a significant gift, they're going to look at me as the primary organization that's most trusted in that space, whatever that cause might be. But otherwise, you know, the idea that you're just going to immediately get revenue because you showed up and had a sign, it's not true. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that. And you keep using this word trust that I really want to underscore here because basically what we're doing with our marketing is that we are increasing trust. And without trust, you have we don't do business. There is no donation. Talk to me a little bit about the givers today because I think about my own buying behavior, my own consumer behavior. I don't need to talk to anyone. Like I go to the website, I click around, and maybe I look at some testimonials and then I buy or I don't buy. Similarly with philanthropic initiatives, like I either will donate because someone I love has asked me to donate, or it's something that I'm already connected to. But by and large, like, I don't want to talk to anybody. And I feel like a lot of the, let's say fundraising, traditional fundraising advice that we've all come up with was like, there's a process and then meet them for coffee. And then you take them on the site visit and blah, 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 blah. Is that still true? Yeah, great question. So in some instances, it is true. There are some donors who want to be engaged that way. But I wrote a little bit about this a couple of days ago. 
Donors are not monolithic in their behavior. And so we have to be prepared if we want to be successful to engage donors and to meet them where they are. Is there a small percentage of donors that want to go to coffee, want to be taken on a tour, all that kind of stuff? Sure. Not anywhere near the number of donors who were willing to do that before. And if you ask them, particularly high net worth donors, they will say, no, we didn't ask for those things. Those were the things that the charity suggested to us. Oftentimes, when we didn't have something valuable to say, we trotted out an experience that we thought would replace our lack of having value to share. So come visit for a tour was an easy way to get 30 minutes with somebody or an hour with somebody if you didn't have the ability to say, here's the four things that are most valuable you need to know today about this and why you should engage with this. But to your earlier point, like today's donors are also today's buyers. There's a lot of talk about in our industry about whether fundraising and marketing and sales are the same thing. There's different camps. And all I will tell you is the same kind of behaviors on both sides of the aisle, the seller and the fundraiser and the buyer and the donor, there's a ton of crossover in those behaviors. And so if we don't have thoughtful experiences for our supporters that mirror the way that they like to buy in the rest of their lives, we're going to end up losing out. So what does that mean? It means that we have to have a really great web experience because you mentioned this, the first place someone's going to go to check you out, they're not going to walk into your organization through your front door and say, hey, I'd like to talk with somebody about giving. They're going to go to your website. They're going to go to your Facebook account. They're going to go to your Instagram or your social platforms that are available are. And if they can't get the information they want in a quick few seconds, they're just going to abandon your brand. And they're going to say, you know what, there's somebody else out there that's going to make it easier and more enjoyable for me to engage in this topic, because you're probably not the only one that does the work that you do. So first things first, you've got to have a great web presence. You've got to have, you've got to invest in user experience. So it's not good enough to just say, I have a website. You have to have a website that's not painful for someone to navigate. And you've got to have a website that's not painful for someone to navigate and that they can say, you know what, in just a few clicks and maybe two or three minutes on your site, I can get all the information I want to know to make a decision of either I'm going to give a gift today or I want to interact with a human being. What you're saying is so important and my experience has been so good that it's worth me giving you my email address, my phone number, whatever, so that I can have a two-way exchange with you to get the information that I want to make a further decision. If you don't have one of those two things and you don't have the value proposition that nails those things, then people are just going to go away. Yeah. And I just want to underscore this so strongly because I, I just did a website review with my students. Sign up for our newsletter is not a compelling call to action. So oftentimes I see the only two calls to action on a website, sign up for the newsletter or donate. I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to do either of those things. Let's talk about something you said, value exchange. And I think that's something that we as the nonprofit field really need to think about. In a for-profit commercial sense, like the value exchange is I give you X number of dollars for this product. That's very clear. What is the value exchange that we should be thinking about in a nonprofit charitable context when we don't have the product that I'm going to give you to take home? What's the value in the mind of my donor? 
Yeah, I think it's probably a couple of different things, right? So if someone doesn't know you at all yet, then the value exchange is different than if they're an ongoing supporter. So to use your example about the either donate or sign up for our newsletter, like newsletter sounds really boring to me, right? But let's say you're an animal rescue organization and you want to get people to subscribe to your content and you want to be able to communicate with them on an ongoing basis via email. You might spin up something like, oh, this nine tips to, to make sure that your home is safe for your pets or download this document check sheet that has team tips to safe travel or healthy travel with your dog or cat, Some, something like that. Obviously, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but things like that where someone would say, you know what? Yeah, I take my dog on road trips all the time. I wonder what that's for. Gosh, I, that my, my neighbor just had a house fire and they were distraught over the fact that it took so long to get their cat to safety. I, I want to make sure that my animals are safe in my home too. It could be any number of things like that. In other places, it could be if you're, a, you're an organization that's focused on, say, teen homelessness, it could be th this tip sheet to spot the signs of teens in crisis in your child's school, anything like that. Those are the kind of things that, that a random person who's landed on your site because they searched for a, key, a keyword term or they hit your advertising somewhere else and are just wanting to learn more, those are the kind of things that create enough value or perceived value in their mind for them to say, I'm willing to part with my email address, something that I hold valuable, want to be spammed. I don't want 47 different organizations sending me crap tomorrow, but it's important enough for me that the content that you're offering is valuable enough that I'm going to part with that information. And I'm going to share that with you in order to get the content that you have. So that's in my mind, the hurdle we have to overcome just to get someone to take a first action to, to give us their contact information so that we can then start having a conversation. I want to underscore this point so strongly because there is nothing worse than getting spammed, right? Like I give to political causes and <laughs> I'm like, don't want to anymore because yeah. you know what I get for my political contribution is I get 10 more emails asking me for money. And I'm like, I didn't sign up for any of this. I don't know how, well, I know how you got my email address, but it, I just really want to underscore that we have to ask people for permission to contact them. Don't abuse the contact information is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. Permission-based marketing is so much more effective than a spray and pray approach. And once, once someone has said, yes, I am willing to share this information with you because what you're offering is so valuable that I want it, you have a completely different conversation. But then beyond that, there's really the value proposition for a philanthropic engagement, right? And that is telling the donor or potential donor, if you invest X, we will use it to do Y so that we can achieve a joint outcome of Z. And so it might be, if you give $50 today, we will be able to send out a rescue van tonight and get one teen off the streets so that he or she is not made fall, does not fall prey to sex traffickers, does not have to sell their body in order to eat tomorrow, or will have a safe place to sleep where they're not going to be attacked by someone on the street. It's something like that, right? And often I do a website review and I get to a donation page and it says, 
give $50 today to provide hope to teens on the street. I'm sorry to everyone who wants to provide hope, but I have no idea what $50 of hope actually gets me. Or support our cause or peace our impact. I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, no one cares about that. People who are charitable want to solve problems. And so tell me how an investment in your cause solves a problem and how you're going to use those dollars to tangibly make a difference tomorrow. And then I might consider it. Let's talk about email addresses or email lists, rather. The mistake that I often see with nonprofits is that they think of their email list. First of all, they usually don't think of their email list, but if they do think of their email list, they think of it as an ATM. All they do is send out solicitations. Talk to me about what does it mean to nurture your list and how often should you be sending out solicitations and what should you be doing in the meantime? Yes, this is such a big topic and it's so important. I have worked with organizations that send 80 to 100 emails a year and all of them are solicitations and it just makes me cringe. Our world, we've actually been having a lot of conversations with our partners about the need for relationship cultivation. And the specific number is going to be probably different for every organization because the overall communication cadence is different for everybody. But I once heard someone say to me, I don't know how many emails is too many, but if all I get are asks, two are too many. And so I think we need to balance that and think about, and I, when I come in and help an organization build out their email calendar, I want to see a robust number of cultivation emails. And when I say cultivation emails, I'm talking about an email without a financial ask. So it's not to say there's not an ask in it because I want to cultivate a behavior of two-way communication, but I definitely don't want to just be asking for money. So if I'm going to have, let's say I'm going to have 12 asks a year in my email, 12 fundraising asks, I want to have at least 24 other emails that are not asking for money. So some of those are going to be reporting back. Impact reporting could be a, that newsletter that you're so keen to ask everybody to sign up for. I hope that it's that you've got some video content where you're saying, hey, check out this video. You gave us a gift two months ago, and I want to show you how we use that to build this new adaptive park in our community to serve families with kids who have disabilities or whatever it might be. But I also want it to be, hey, let me tell you the story of Sarah's one of the kids in our program that your support has helped and she's got something she wants to tell you, right? And so it's a meaningful story that tells her life story, how she got connected to the organization, how your giving intersected with the work that we're doing with Sarah. And in her words, talking to you about why it's important to, to be a part of this cause. So things like that, and it's, again, it's gonna be different for every organization based on the assets they have, the stories they're able or not able to tell, and the ways in which they can engage their community. But I think it's really critical to have at least a couple of touches that are non-financial for every time you solicit. And some of the ways that you can ask people to still have a sort of engaging communication with you, a two-way communication, would be things like a donor survey, signing something and sending it back shooting you a quick note to tell you what's the one thing that's most important about the work that you're doing. There's any number of different ways that you can ask people to engage that don't have to be financially motivated. 
Yeah. You've said so much that I just want to unpack here. So I'll talk about this similarly. I call it pebbles and rocks. So pebbles are the things that agitate the water, like the newsletters, the impact reports, the videos, the social media posts, right? The rocks are the solicitations. So you really need to think about, are you throwing out all rocks or are you throwing out all pebbles? Most organizations tend to throw out all rocks. Something that you said that I think is really important is the idea of closing the loop for our donors, right? Because we, automation, like you get sent the thank you letter, the thank you email, but that's not enough. And I think when I think about the experience of the donor, they're on a story, like they're on a journey with you. And if you don't close the loop, i.e. what did you do with my money? You've left an open story and that doesn't feel great. But I want to talk about storytelling because I've been out in the field and I've been doing a lot of training. And I think there's been some pushback around the use of story in fundraising. And I think part of it is that all of us have been exposed to really bad storytelling, call it poverty porn, like the poor kids with like flies on their face or like the sad dog, right? How do we use story in a way that it doesn't feel exploitative? Yeah. So I think there's a number of different things related to that we have to address. First is the permission side of it, right? So I think one of the big risks that organizations run is telling stories without actually inviting the person who, whose story it is to actively speak in it. And I think that's really dangerous. So when we are working with organizations and doing storytelling work, the first thing that we're doing is sitting down with those people who are in their programs, receiving support, you know, what, whatever. And we're actually, we're not, we don't just jump straight into interview, but we're talking about here's why, here's why we tell these stories. Here's what they help us accomplish. And, and then inviting them and asking their permission to be a part of that. So that's one thing. Second is we're telling oftentimes really difficult stories, right? In my work, I've been doing this for a long time and much of my work has been with sick hunger and poverty. So I'm talking to people who are living on the streets, who are living in their cars, who have to go and stand in line at a food shelf three times a week in order to feed their kids. It's really emotional and often stigmatized kind of conversation. And when you get into things like teens living on the street, and you get into sex trafficking and prostitution and things of that nature, that's even more complicated and harder stories to tell. And I don't think that it's wrong to tell those stories. In fact, I reject the idea that it's wrong to tell those stories. And often what you'll hear me say is, if our comfort as marketers and fundraisers is more important than raising the money to actually help get someone off the street, that's when I say it's your time to quit your job and go do something else. But it doesn't mean that we need to exploit people, right? So I think part of that is letting the person about whom we're telling the story have ownership of that story, right? And making sure that we tell the full story. It's not just Sarah's on the street, right? It's here's what's going on in her life today. And here's how she's empowered because of what's going on. So I think we need to... It needs to be much more complex and nuanced storytelling than what we're used to. I think one of the biggest culprits in this is the direct marketing agencies who say, yeah, we've got this letter written. We need two lines of copy that are going to be about the story. All you can do then is say, Sally's poor and homeless and needs your help. That's not the entirety of who she is. 
I am reminded of Erica Carley, who was on the podcast, who talked about constructing stories as a gift back to the person. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the what we need to think through then is what are the formats that we are using <clears throat> and mediums that we are using to tell these stories that allow us to actually have a more rich experience and tell more of that story than two lines of copy. And I agree with Erica's perspective. I think there's another perspective, though, and I've heard people say this. And in fact, I, you and I haven't talked about this, I don't think, but I actually, my family lost everything we owned when I was 15, and we ended up homeless. So I tell this, I tell you this partly as someone who's lived this life as well. The reality is, it is often empowering to the individual who's had that experience to be able to tell their story. So I think one of the biggest risks that I see is nonprofit do-gooders who say, wait a minute, we can't tell that person's story because we have to protect them. And I flatly reject that. I think that's BS. And if you ask the people who are, have lived through that, they will often say, I may not be able to give financially today, but telling my story in this way to help the organization that helped my family be able to help more people is my ability to give back. And I think we need to put that in context and not just have a protectionist mentality, but the idea of being able to tell that story as a way to give that person a gift back, I think is fantastic. Yeah. And I actually just want to think about this as well, which is when we think about telling people's stories, it can be hard to tell the story of someone that's still in the middle of it, right? Sure. If And so I think we also need to think about the arc of the story such that say someone's going through a difficult experience, can they talk about it on the other side of it emotionally? Like it's really hard to talk about it like when you're in it. Yeah. Okay, let's like back out a little bit because I think this has been a fantastic and gosh, we're running out of time. I can't believe we've been going for 40 minutes. What is, for the total newbie, what's outbound versus inbound marketing? Yeah, the, probably the easiest way to think about that is if you find yourself using any term that has blast at the end of it, that's outbound, right? We're going to do an email blast. We're going to do a, we're going to blast this. We're going to blast that. That's outbound. That's pushing a message out to a, whether it's your active, your house file, people that are already supporting you or new constituents, it, outbound is sending things to them. Inbound, think of that as pulling people in. When we talk about creating offers that people can subscribe to, to get more information. So you're, you are creating an inbound, oftentimes it's referred to as a funnel, right? So you're creating a content piece, whether it's something that's printed, whether it's video content, whether it's audio content, any kind of content where you're saying to someone, Hey, come engage with us, trade us your email address in exchange for this piece of value, this piece of content that's valuable, that is the inbound side. And it's not to say that you don't have some typically digital marketing spend that supports driving traffic to your content, uh, but you're not, say, sending out a direct mail acquisition piece or sending out an email blast to people. You're actually pulling them in via high value content offers. And then once they've given you their email address, then you're remarketing to them through outbound channels, typically again, e email content, where you're then building that relationship that leads to a fundraising ask of some sort. So it sounds like we should be thinking about using both of these strategies for different parts of what we'll call the funnel, right? Yes, 
there's still definitely viability in outbound, whether it's outbound digital marketing or even direct mail. There are plenty of people who say direct mail is dying or dead. The financial metrics don't support that. It still works within reason. But yes, I would say you should be using both. And so the biggest challenge that I see organizations face is they think about inbound in the same context in which they think about outbound. And the problem with that is that inbound often doesn't come with an immediate financial transaction. So, you know, you might have someone say, wait a minute, we got 500 leads, but nobody's given a gift yet. That's a failure. And it's only a failure if you're thinking about it through the lens of direct response fundraising, where you're saying, well, wait a minute, if I spent a dollar yesterday in direct mail acquisition or in email acquisition, I should have a dollar in commensurate value coming back to me. And that's how that, those channels work. But on the inbound side, the real value is building up a constituent base that will deliver value to your organization, your cause over time. But you have to nurture that, that constituent base differently. Sometimes it's a two to four week cycle before you can start asking. Sometimes it might be a longer tail, depending on the kind of organization and the interaction that you have with that constituency, and you just have to test it. But what we often find is that the people that come in off of content offers on the inbound side, they tend to be more valuable over time because you've built a deeper relationship with them on the front end. Okay. So let's get back to the original question. If I'm listening to you and I'm like, okay, cool, Andrew, like I'm hearing all the things that you're saying, but let's get back to the question. How do I find more prospects? How do I find more donors? Twofold question here. In my mind, I think that we undercapitalize on our existing list, right? I think we just haven't stewarded them properly. But what if I actually am looking to bring more people into the fold? Top like three strategies I can think about right now. Yes. So first I need to echo what you just said. If you have something below 70% retention, the first place that you should invest is retention, not acquisition. Getting beyond that, because I know some people just won't take that advice. I talk about the leaky bucket all the time and it drives me crazy. I'm like, why are you pouring water into a leaky bucket? You're just going to have to solve the same problem over and over again. Anyway, plug the leaky bucket. Yes, I'm with you. So if we put that aside and we say, where should we acquire new donors? I think there's a couple of different answers to that. So when I think about the donors that are providing the greatest level of financial investment to organizations right now, the way that you acquire those people is going most likely going to be through referrals from the people who are already giving you those big gifts, right? So it's not, how do I acquire a list? It's not, how do I go out and get a bunch of emails? It's, I'm going to go talk to my major donors. And one of the things I'm going to ask them next month is, can they introduce me to three people like them who might be interested in our cause as well? So that's a very different acquisition strategy. That's where you're going after ones and twos, but the checks that are going to come from those ones and twos are going to have way more zeros on them than going out and getting a bunch of small dollar donors. Double clicking on all the things. Yes, totally agree. Then beyond that, when we think about the quote unquote mass donor audience, right? So the $25 transactional donor, depending on your cause and depending on whether or not you can build a mass following for it. I say whether or not, because there are just some causes that are really difficult to do that. So when I think of domestic violence, it's really difficult 
to find an audience, a broad audience that where the financial metrics make sense for high volume acquisition on that cause. So they're an organization that's doing that kind of work or doing systems change work in a community. That's really tough to quote unquote sell in direct market. That those organizations are going to have a tougher time doing broad acquisition. <clears throat> Other organizations should be looking at things like direct mail acquisition. They should be looking at things like paid search and display and paid social marketing to drive traffic to their site that they can convert new donors out of, right? That those things are going to probably be the highest and best return. But I would say the way that you need to think about this is not what's the channel I'm going to use, but what's the financial structure that I need to live with it. And what I mean by that is if my long-term donor value is $300, then where can I spend the least amount of money to get more donors that look like that, that are going to give me $300 over a five-year time horizon or more? And I'm going to allocate the investment dollars that I have for marketing to the channels and the activities that are going to get me the highest long-term return. So that's a lot different than saying, where do I go get donors, right? But if we don't understand those underlying metrics first, we're going to go seek out supporters in places where we might get a lot of donors, but they might be really low value and not give me the kind of return. And they might come with a higher cost. So I would say don't chase the channel as much as chasing the investment strategy first and then retrofit where to get them based on what my numbers are. Andrew, we can have a whole other podcast, probably just a whole series of podcasts around metrics and building a funnel and conversion rates and pixels and all of the retargeting and lookalike audiences and so on. So that's when we get very into the weeds of digital marketing and all those sorts of strategies. We don't have time for that, but I'd love to have you back on and we can get a little nerdy about digital marketing. Yeah, to bottom line it for everyone, because I don't want people to walk away going, gosh, I didn't hear anything about where to get new donors. The places where you're most likely to get new donors, direct mail acquisition, paid search, so key, keyword search, Google, Bing, things like that, but not the Google grant because it pretty much sucks for new donor acquisition. Paying for display marketing, paying for social media advertising. And the reason I say paying is because the ability to target the right audiences often comes with a gated payment offering versus just using Facebook for free kind of thing. There are some things you can do for free that'll still work, but not everything. So those are the places where you're most likely to get the highest volume of new donors. But again, you have to understand the math behind it to know that where you want to be is actually the place that's going to get you the best. And to underscore all of that, to bring it all the way back to the beginning, you need to understand who your donor is, yep. who they are, what they care about, where they hang out before you even start to think about things like ad spend, because it's not going to be effective if you don't actually understand the mindset and motivations of your audience. Totally agree. Yay. We brought it back to the beginning. Andrew, this has been really helpful certainly a lot for folks to think about. I'll make sure to put all of your information in the show notes for folks who want to learn more about you, who want to hear your excellent podcast and to get in touch with you. So thanks so much. Thank you. Good to be with you. All right, everyone. Take care. Have a good week.
Hi, if you're a friend of Nonprofit Lowdown, you might be interested in my weekly free newsletter where I send out weekly inspiration for fundraising, notices about any upcoming events that I'm doing, and a cute dog picture. So check it out at riawong.com, R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. Thank you.